Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Additionally, due to the timely manner of this case, many of the people involved are still alive. We will be assigning them pseudonyms to protect their privacy. Still no answer. I'm getting worried. Relax, Carl. I'm sure she'll call back. She probably went out of town or something. I don't know. This isn't like her. You've been going out for what? Two weeks now? I hardly think you know what she's like. I'm calling her again. Maybe she was putting the baby down for a nap or something. I'll call this time. Why don't you go fix yourself a cup of tea? That... sounds good. She's fine. Everything's okay. Just relax. Carl? Can you come in here? Is it Suzanne? Is she okay? There's a detective on the line. Carl. Suzanne has been murdered. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. This is our final episode on the January 1977 murders of Suzanne Armstrong and Susan Bartlett, colloquially known as the Easy Street Murders. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we are doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. You can listen to previous episodes of Unsolved Murders, as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify and wherever else you listen to podcasts. On the morning of January 13th, 1977, two women, who we're calling Elizabeth Simmons and Janice Arnold, discovered the dead bodies of their next-door neighbors, Suzanne Armstrong and Susan Bartlett, when they went to check on Armstrong's infant son, Gregory. For several days, Elizabeth and Janice had heard Gregory crying through the wall they shared with Armstrong and Bartlett. At first, they hesitated to get involved in their neighbor's business, but when Gregory's cries started getting weaker and weaker, Elizabeth and Janice decided to go next door and make sure he was okay. When nobody answered the door, the two women entered through the back door, which they had noticed was ajar. While Janice waited in the kitchen, Elizabeth found Susan Bartlett's body by the front door. Suzanne Armstrong was dead in her bedroom. Janice ran to call the police while Elizabeth went to check on Gregory. He was alive, but barely. She stayed by his side until the police arrived, trying to keep him calm. Once the police entered the house, they quickly moved to secure the crime scene. Gregory was taken away in an ambulance while detectives swarmed the building. 
At the time, they weren't required to wait for a forensic team to make sure all the evidence stayed undisturbed, or even wear any protective footwear or clothing to ensure they didn't contaminate the scene. When the case's lead detective, who we'll call Stephen Roberts, arrived at 147 Easy Street, he went in through the back door and entered the kitchen, where he saw a piece of paper wedged under an ashtray on the table. It was a note from Suzanne Armstrong's boyfriend, who we're calling Carl Brandenburg, telling her to call him as soon as she could. Detective Roberts made a mental note to follow up on that message as he walked further into the house. He looked into the bathroom to the right of the kitchen. There was a giant smear of blood on the bathtub. When Roberts went through the kitchen into the small living room, he saw a blood-stained towel on the couch. He concluded that the killer must have cleaned himself up after murdering Armstrong and Bartlett. As he went down the corridor that led to the front door, Roberts peeked into the first bedroom, which belonged to Sue Bartlett. He saw that the window was cracked open, just wide enough for a person to fit through. Detective Roberts noticed that the blinds covering the window had fallen down. He entered the bedroom to take a closer look and noticed a dirty footprint on Bartlett's bedspread. The rest of the room was still in order. There was no indication that a struggle had taken place. But that wasn't the case with the hallway. As Roberts approached Sue Bartlett's body, the walls on either side of her were smeared with dried blood. Even without a close inspection, he could see that Bartlett's body was riddled with stab wounds. Roberts gingerly made his way around Bartlett, careful not to disturb the scene. He peered around the door into Suzanne Armstrong's bedroom, mere inches from where Bartlett lay. Even as a veteran of Melbourne's homicide division, what Roberts saw disturbed him. Suzanne Armstrong was lying on her back. Her nightgown pulled up past her breasts. Although Armstrong's chest was full of stab wounds, there was much less blood there than there should have been for such a violent attack. Roberts tried not to shudder as a theory began to form in his mind. From this initial observation, it seemed that after the killer murdered the two women, he cleaned up the blood from Armstrong's wounds, raped her, then cleaned himself off in the bathroom before exiting out the back door. Whoever the killer was, Roberts believed that he hadn't taken Armstrong by surprise. Her bed sheets were neatly pulled aside, and a book was placed face down on the side table, still open. Perhaps she had heard him climbing in through Sue Bartlett's window and had gone to investigate. There was also the possibility that the killer had walked in through the front door. The attack's deeply personal nature meant that whoever had killed the two women knew at least one of them, and since he had sexually assaulted Armstrong, she was probably the one who knew him. Although the dirty footprint on Sue Bartlett's bed intrigued Detective Roberts, he was inclined to believe that Armstrong had willingly led him into the house and that he had attacked her first. Roberts believed that since Bartlett's bed was undisturbed, she was either in the kitchen or the backyard when the murderer attacked Suzanne Armstrong. Perhaps she had heard something going on in Armstrong's bedroom and was going to make sure her friend was all right when she came across the killer in the hallway. Whoever the killer was, Roberts was confident they'd catch him soon. Although DNA testing didn't exist yet, there was still an abundance of physical evidence to examine. 
not to mention the note that had been left in the kitchen. Whoever this Carl was, Roberts was very eager to track him down. He didn't have to look very hard. Around 10.30 a.m. on January 13th, the same day the bodies were discovered, Carl's sister, who were calling Megan to protect her privacy, called the phone at 147 Easy Street. The detective who answered quickly found out that Megan was Carl's sister and arranged to have Carl brought down to the police station. According to Carl, he had made plans to go out with Armstrong on January 11th, the day after the murders. When he never heard from her, Carl got worried and went over to Armstrong's house on the 12th around 8.30 p.m., along with his brother, who we'll call Jake. I don't think they're here. Come on, let's go home. Are you really going to give up that easily? Let's go around the side. Maybe they're in the backyard. That's weird. The back door looks open. Suze? Are you there? Something's wrong. They wouldn't just leave the door open like this if they weren't home. Maybe they popped out for a few minutes and forgot. Let's leave a note. Maybe that'll help you stop worrying so much. We shouldn't go inside without permission. It feels wrong. She's your girlfriend. I'm sure she won't care. I'll just write a quick message for you, and we can get out of here. During his police interview on January 13th, Carl told the police that he and his brother were in Armstrong and Bartlett's house for less than five minutes. He claimed he felt it would be improper to go any further into the house. He said he never saw Bartlett or Armstrong's bodies or heard Gregory crying in his room. After an intense interrogation session in which eight detectives questioned Carl, he was allowed to go free. Although it was certainly suspicious that he had gone into the house and hadn't seen the crime scene, the house's design meant that Bartlett and Armstrong's bodies wouldn't be visible if Carl had never left the kitchen. For the time being, the police were satisfied with Carl's story. He wasn't considered a serious suspect, although he remained a person of interest in the case. At the very least, the question of who had left the note in the kitchen was answered. But there was still one piece of physical evidence that conflicted with Detective Roberts' theory of how the murder had occurred. The dirty footprint on Sue Bartlett's bed. Luckily, it didn't take long to identify the person who had left it. As the police investigation carried on into the evening of January 13, 1977, a young man who had been dating Sue Bartlett came forward to admit that he had left the footprint. He was never officially named in the case, so we'll just refer to him by his profession, the tobacco salesman. According to an interview the tobacco salesman gave to journalist Tom Pryor, he went over to 147 Easy Street on the night of January 11th, just a few hours after Carl and his brother were there. He had been out drinking with a friend, and, fueled by liquid courage, they decided to go over to the house for an in-person visit. Sue! It's me! Open up! It's really late. She's probably asleep. Let's just come back in the morning. Sue! Come on! I just want to talk! Well, there's no way she's asleep after that. She must be out for the night. Come on, let's get out of here. Not yet! 
Maybe I had the wrong number or something. Look, her window is cracked open. Give me a leg up. I'll run inside and make sure I've been calling the right number. After climbing into Bartlett's bedroom with a leg up from his friend, the tobacco salesman immediately turned towards the living room to check the phone. He claimed he didn't see Bartlett's body lying by the front door at the opposite end of the hall and exited back through her bedroom window. Two days later, on the evening of January 13th, another one of the salesman's friends showed him a newspaper article about Bartlett and Armstrong's deaths. He immediately thought of the late-night visit two days earlier and went to the police station with his lawyer to make a statement. The police grilled the salesman with questions late into the early hours of January 14th. They were highly skeptical that he could have walked through the house without seeing Bartlett's body in the hallway or without disturbing Gregory and making him cry. The salesman's excuse was that the house was dark except for the light on in the kitchen. He said that as he stumbled through the house in his drunken stupor, his only objective was the telephone in the living room. Then, when he turned around and went back into Bartlett's room, the hallway was so dark he didn't see Bartlett's body lying by the front door. Apparently, the police were satisfied enough with the salesman's story to let him go after they questioned him. But like Carl Brandenburg, he remained a person of interest in the case. While clearing Carl and the tobacco salesman helped streamline Detective Roberts' case, it also eliminated the two likeliest suspects that would have been on his radar. Although Roberts still had a lot of physical evidence to work with, the case was getting harder to solve by the minute. By the morning of January 14th, Armstrong and Bartlett had been dead for over four days, which is two days past the crucial window of time in which most murder cases are solved. Had Carl or the salesman seen the girls' bodies, perhaps they could have alerted the police sooner and it would have been easier to find the killer. But all hope wasn't yet lost. Although Carl and the salesman were dead ends, the police were hopeful that Armstrong and Bartlett's neighbors might have noticed something that could help them crack the case. As it turned out, the victim's neighbors helped the police quickly identify a new suspect, who had been connected to the disappearance of a young woman less than two years earlier. And on the night that Suzanne Armstrong and Sue Bartlett were murdered, he was in the house next door. Coming up, Armstrong and Bartlett's neighbors try to help the police follow new leads. On Unsolved Murders, we explore the facts of real-life true crime cold cases. But if you're looking for more true crime cases with a bit of a twist, you should check out the ParCast original Female Criminals. When you think of a criminal, what do you picture? You picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Well, I bet you didn't think it could be the mother around the corner or the little old lady next door. Female Criminals investigates the lives of the world's most notorious female felons and explores the stories behind their dangerous crimes. These criminals come in every form, from serial killers and assassins to bank robbers and drug lords. Female Criminals is like a mystery and crime documentary rolled into one. New episodes premiere every Wednesday. Follow Female Criminals free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to this unsolved murder. 
After clearing Carl Brandenburg and the unnamed tobacco salesman of murdering Suzanne Armstrong and Sue Bartlett on the night of January 11, 1977, police quickly zeroed in on another suspect, a crime reporter were calling James Garland to protect his privacy. On the night Armstrong and Bartlett were murdered, Garland was in the house next door with his co-worker, the woman we're calling Elizabeth Simmons. At the time, Garland was notorious for his connection to the July 1st, 1975 disappearance of a young woman named Julie Ann Garcia Salai. The night of Garcia Salai's disappearance, Garland and two associates had gone over to her apartment in North Melbourne. They were the last ones to see her before she disappeared. Although Garland had been cleared of any wrongdoing, the Garcia Salai case remained open, and he was still regarded as a person of interest. So when the authorities found out that Garland was in the house next door the night Armstrong and Bartlett were murdered, he was firmly in their crosshairs. The night of the Easy Street slayings, Garland had been drinking heavily with Elizabeth Simmons and her roommate, who were calling Janice Arnold. According to Elizabeth, they all went to bed around 2 a.m., and when she woke up on the morning of January 11, 1977, at 8 a.m., Garland was already up and dressed. When the police brought him in for questioning, they focused in on the span of time when Garland claimed to have been asleep. Although he didn't know Armstrong or Bartlett, the police reasoned that Garland could have seen them at some point in the night and gone next door while Elizabeth and Janice were passed out. Aside from his involvement in the Julianne Garcia Salai case, police were interested in Garland as a suspect in the Easy Street murders because of his job as a crime reporter. He would have been familiar with the forensic procedures of the time and could have had the presence of mind to clean himself after killing Armstrong and Bartlett. But after putting him under intense questioning for the entirety of January 14th, the police weren't able to poke any holes in Garland's story. As with Carl Brandenburg and the unnamed tobacco salesman who had been dating Bartlett, Garland was allowed to go free, but was still regarded as a person of interest in the case. With their initial list of suspects exhausted, the police started going door-to-door throughout Armstrong and Bartlett's neighborhood to find out if any of their neighbors had seen something the night of January 10th or the early morning of January 11th. They didn't have to go very far to get their first lead. Armstrong and Bartlett's other next-door neighbor was a woman in her 80s named Gladys Coventry. She was known in the area as a sort of unofficial neighborhood watch, as she liked to station herself in her small kitchen and observe people as they went about their business. When detectives visited Coventry's house shortly after beginning their investigation on January 13th, she told them that she had seen something the night Armstrong and Bartlett were murdered. The night was hot, steamy even. It was hot, yes. My old bones could hardly sleep with the heat. So I wandered to my kitchen window. Boy, was it hot. I get it. It was hot. Excuse me, young man. You've said it was hot. I understand. Just tell me what you saw. Well, I never... Ma'am, please. If you're so impatient, just know that I saw a man. Are you happy now? From where she was sitting, Coventry was able to see into Armstrong and Bartlett's kitchen window. 
In the early hours of January 11th, she noticed a man in their kitchen repeatedly washing his hands and scrubbing at what she thought was a piece of clothing. Although Coventry thought it was odd he would be up and about at such a late hour, nothing about the man seemed overly suspicious. As he moved about the kitchen, he seemed very calm and appeared to be at ease. After a while, he exited out the back door and through the side gate. He passed only a few meters away from Coventry as he walked down the alley separating the two houses. At the time, Mrs. Coventry assumed the man must have been one of Armstrong or Bartlett's friends. But once she found out that they had been killed, she realized that the man she saw could have been the murderer. But for whatever reason, when Coventry told the detectives investigating the case what she had seen, they didn't seem particularly interested in what she had to say. Perhaps they were still focused on investigating Carl, the tobacco salesman, and James Garland. Mrs. Coventry didn't have a clear description of the man she saw, and so maybe the police didn't think there was anything worth following up on. Mrs. Coventry didn't appreciate what she had perceived as a lack of respect from the detectives she initially spoke to. So she didn't bother pushing the matter. But as the weeks went by and the police started running out of clues, they returned to Mrs. Coventry to see if she could provide any more detail. Oh, why if it isn't Mr. No Time to Lose? What are you doing here? Ma'am, about what you saw that night... Oh, what I saw? What I saw? You don't have time to bother with what little old me saw. Ma'am, I assure you... Oh, no. No time at all. No time at all. Goodbye, you busy man. I'm sure you've got plenty of better things to do. However, she wouldn't talk to them because she was still insulted by the detective's initial rudeness. But the detectives weren't about to just leave it at that. They thought that if Mrs. Coventry wouldn't talk to them, maybe she'd talk to someone else. The police sent the state of Victoria's police surgeon, Dr. John Birrell, to speak with her sometime in January 1977. Good afternoon, ma'am. My name is John. Nice to meet you. Oh, to what do I owe the pleasure of your visit? Uh, John, was it? Well, I've recently been put in charge of the city's elderly wellness division. And I'm just stopping by to check up on you, make sure you're okay, see if there's anything the city can help you with. That sort of thing. Well, that sounds wonderful. I'm actually doing quite well lately. Although it has been rather hot outside. Quite hot, in fact, you see. Oh yes, the heat's been dreadful. But how have your neighbors been? Have you seen anything that might put you at unease? Make you feel unsafe? Well, you see, other than the temperature, I've got quite a lot of heat building up from policemen who think they can rudely deceive an old lady. Goodbye, sir. Under the guise of an elderly person wellness check, Dr. Burrell tried to get Mrs. Coventry to describe what she saw the night of the murders, but she caught on to him almost immediately. She sent him away without giving him any helpful information. In the end, the police's handling of Gladys Coventry was a massive misstep in the case. Even though she was extremely uncooperative, the police could have done more to placate one of the case's key witnesses. 
The authorities never got a complete statement from her or an official sketch of the man she saw in Armstrong and Bartlett's kitchen. With no clear suspect to pursue, Mrs. Coventry's information could have immensely helped the investigation. At the very least, having a description of the killer could have helped them narrow the field of suspects. But Gladys Coventry wasn't the only person on Easy Street who observed something suspicious that night. A 21-year-old man, whom we'll call Brandon Stevens, to protect his privacy, lived a few doors down from Armstrong and Bartlett at 139 Easy Street. At around 2.30 a.m. on the morning of January 11th, Brandon and his friend Ray had just gone to bed when they heard what sounded like two people making a quick getaway from one of the houses on the street. When the police were making their rounds up and down Easy Street, Brandon's mother told them what he and Ray had heard, but the police never followed up. Brandon assumed they weren't interested in what he had to say. But the police's lack of action didn't necessarily indicate a lack of interest. At the time, there were only 16 detectives on the state of Victoria's homicide squad, and collaboration between departments was rare. With other cases on their plates, homicide detectives didn't have time to follow up on information they didn't think could help them solve a case. Perhaps the reason they didn't follow up with Brandon Stevens was that he described clearly hearing two doors shut, which meant there could have been two killers. But the police's theory was that only one man killed Armstrong and Bartlett. Maybe they weren't interested in pursuing anything that didn't fit with their version of what happened. There's also the fact that Brandon didn't actually see anything. He only heard it. So he wouldn't have been able to provide any visual descriptions for the police to go off of. With their resources already stretched thin, it's easy to understand why they decided not to follow up with Brandon Stevens. Besides, they had other solid leads to pursue. By the end of January 14th, they had acquired another piece of evidence that had the potential to bring the case to a swift conclusion, the murder weapon. Just before midnight on January 10th, police found a knife that had been discarded at the Victoria Park station, less than a mile from 147 Easy Street. When the police first found the knife, they didn't think anything of it. But when they deduced that Armstrong and Bartlett had probably been murdered late on the 10th or early on the 11th, they realized this knife could be the murder weapon. The knife had been wiped clean, which lined up with the theory that the killer had cleaned himself after the murders. But investigators found traces of blood inside the handle. Although DNA testing didn't exist at the time, the police could still test the blood to see if there were samples that matched Armstrong and Bartlett's blood types. The sample they found on the knife was blood type A, the same as Armstrong's. But there weren't any traces of Bartlett's blood type O. The knife's connection to the murders was tenuous at best. Additionally, it was probably found too early on the night of January 10th to have been used to kill the two women. But amongst the growing frustration around the case, there was some good news. Armstrong's 16-month-old son, Gregory, made a full recovery after being left alone in the house for over two days. Police asked Gregory's father, a man we referred to as Adrian to protect his privacy, if he was interested in gaining custody of his son. However, Adrian declined, not wanting to raise Gregory on his own. 
Gregory was temporarily placed in the care of Armstrong's younger brother before being taken in permanently by her sister, who we're calling Amanda. On January 20th, 1977, one week after Armstrong and Bartlett's bodies were discovered, Armstrong's father, Bill, and Bartlett's brother, who we're calling Michael, went to 147 Easy Street to remove Armstrong and Bartlett's personal belongings. A journalist, who we're calling Katrina Anderson, accompanied them for an article she was writing on the case. As they wandered through the house, the hallway was still covered in Sue Bartlett's dried blood. Bill and Michael shared their thoughts with Anderson and called for anyone who knew something to come forward, no matter how insignificant the detail was. But details were scarce. A local dry cleaner claimed someone dropped off a blood-stained pair of pants, although they were picked up before she realized the pants could be connected to the Easy Street murders. Similarly, a hospital near Armstrong and Bartlett's house reported an odd occurrence. Oh, are you okay, sir? Your hands look awful. That's why I'm here, right? I need to see a doctor. Of course, of course. I'll just need you to write down your name and address, and a doctor will be with you shortly. Why do you need my name and address? Just help me, for Christ's sake. Can't you tell I need help? Sir, we can only help you if we know who you are and... Fine, don't help me then. The hospital reported a middle-aged man whose hands were covered in blood came in for treatment on the night of January 10th but he fled when asked for his name and address. Since Armstrong and Bartlett's bodies weren't discovered until the 13th, the hospital workers had no idea he could be connected to their murder. CCTV didn't exist yet either, so there was no way to identify him. But shortly after publishing her article in late January 1977, Katrina Anderson received a phone call that could have broken the case wide open. Is this Katrina Anderson? Speaking. May I ask who's calling? I read your article on the Easy Street murders. You are very descriptive, but you're not as observant as you think you are. Sir, if there's something you know about the case that you'd like to share, please call the police. (sighs) You mentioned they had a record player, but you didn't say what records they had. They were listening to Abbey Road. As the caller described other objects in the house that Anderson hadn't described, she scribbled a note to a co-worker to contact the office's switchboard to see if they could trace the call. Sir, if you don't want to contact the police, maybe we could meet up? I'd be happy to update my article with any details I might have left out. I think that's a good idea. I'll call you back. He never called back. Anderson wondered if she had just spoken to the killer or someone connected to him. He had known things that only someone who had been in Armstrong and Bartlett's house would know. Anderson immediately called the police to tell them what had just happened. But when she followed up a few days later, they didn't tell her if anything had come from her information and said that the investigation was still ongoing. It seemed Anderson's tip must have led to another dead end. The whole investigation seemed to be a frustrating series of loose threads that never led to anything concrete. As we've seen, a large reason for this is that the police lacked either the resources or the willingness to follow through on every possible lead. And nothing better reflects this problem than the half-hearted investigation into one final suspect. 
This suspect had a connection to Suzanne Armstrong, a potential motive to kill her, and most importantly, the temperament to do it. Coming up, another potential killer comes under scrutiny. And now, back to this unsolved murder. As January 1977 came to a close, it seemed like the murders of Suzanne Armstrong and Susan Bartlett would go unsolved. A case that lead detective Stephen Roberts thought would be closed in a matter of days seemed primed to drag on into the near future and beyond. But there's a chilling possibility that the police had the killer in their sights and failed to properly investigate him. This suspect, who has never been named, was a former policeman who apparently knew Suzanne Armstrong, although the exact nature of their connection has never been clarified. A few years before the Easy Street murders, he had been kicked off the force for sexually harassing women he stopped for supposed traffic infringements. After getting fired, the ex-policeman's wife left him and his subsequent romantic relationships had failed. At the time of the murders, the suspect was working as a day laborer and had worked at construction sites near Armstrong and Bartlett's house. He was known to be a heavy drinker, and when the police questioned him about his whereabouts during the week Armstrong and Bartlett were murdered, he gave conflicting statements. And yet, the investigation never delved any deeper than that. Twenty years later, journalist Tom Pryor speculated this inaction by the police was because of the suspect's status as a former law enforcement officer. The police investigation had stalled on multiple levels, and when over a year passed and the murder investigation was still ongoing, Armstrong's sister, Amanda, desperately turned to an unlikely source for help, a world-famous psychic. On June 23, 1978, Amanda met with Doris Stokes, a British medium who claimed to make contact with people's deceased relatives. Much like the supposed psychic performers we have today, such as John Edward, Stokes would enthrall her audiences with what appeared to be a supernatural ability to connect with the dead. After Stokes claimed she had helped British police solve some ongoing murder cases, Mel Burns, the Sunday Press newspaper, arranged a meeting between Amanda and Stokes to see if the medium could offer any insight into the Easy Street murders. Within a matter of minutes, Stokes seemed to have the entire case solved. Suzanne? Suzanne! Good Suzanne shows me all! Oh, Sue, please tell us who killed you. They. Two men. They entered through the kitchen window. He sliced at me with a tradesman's tool, a chisel, no less, as if I were some block of wood. You weren't wood, Sue. You were a person. I was a person. Now I'm dead, killed by this man. He's the swine. Swine indeed. She provided the names of the two men she claimed killed Armstrong and Bartlett and how they had killed the two women and escaped unseen. Stokes claimed Armstrong knew both of the murderers. Stokes went on to say that the murder weapon was hidden in the Pretty Sally area, about 50 kilometers outside of Melbourne. While Amanda felt the experience with Stokes was incredibly powerful and believed it merited further investigation, the police weren't interested in pursuing any of the information the psychic provided. 
The head of the state of Victoria's Homicide Squad didn't mince words in criticizing what he viewed as Stokes' manipulation of a grieving woman for publicity. He said that if Stokes had any real evidence, he'd be happy to follow up on it, and left it at that. Although the case remained open, the police had run out of leads. But over 20 years after the murders in 1998, the advent of DNA testing offered Armstrong and Bartlett's families the possibility of finding justice for the murdered women. At the time of the murders, investigators were able to collect a sample of the killer semen from Armstrong's body. While it didn't prove to be useful at the time, it was kept in evidence, and when DNA testing became possible, it became a beacon of hope for Armstrong and Bartlett's families. Carl Brandenburg, the tobacco salesman, James Garland, the ex-police officer, and four others were tested against the DNA sample that had been collected at the crime scene. All of them came back negative. The DNA didn't match any of the profiles within Australia's criminal database either. However, it's important to note that DNA testing is far from perfect, especially if the original sample has been contaminated in any way. And in the case of the Easy Street murders, it may have been. Allegedly, the container in which the killer's DNA was stored was misplaced in police storage for over a decade. If this were true, then any number of factors could have compromised the sample. There's even the possibility that it was mislabeled, and the sample investigators tested didn't even belong to the killer. Additionally, when the samples were first tested in 1998, the use of DNA evidence was still developing. There was a chance that the tests were false negatives, but perhaps the DNA samples wouldn't be needed. A few years later, someone came forward claiming they knew who the real killer was. On January 30th, 2004, Armstrong's stepfather, who we're calling Bert Collins, received a letter from a man we're calling Oscar Davidson. Dear Bert, it's terribly sad that your wife and the two families were cheated because of the criminal negligence of Larundel Hospital. Then, to add insult to injury, the Homicide Squad have known for four years and five months that Jack Christie could be the Easy Street Killer, but chose pathetic sad games instead of a proper investigation. According to Davidson, in early 1977, he was a patient at Melbourne's Lorundell Psychiatric Hospital. In late January, a man named Jack Christie was admitted after attempting suicide. When Christie was first admitted, he was in a coma. But when he woke up 10 days later, he provided some shocking revelations that Davidson described in his second letter on February 11th, 2004. <gasps> Whoa, no, come back. Back. Mr. Christie? You're awake. At the worst time, too. We were just getting to the good stuff. Are you talking about your dreams? Dreams? Memories? Who knows? All I know is that I'd just gotten done with that broad, and I'd finally sunken my carving knife into her chest. You killed your lover? Always. I always want to kill my lover. <laughs> Christie said in group therapy that after having sex with a woman, he felt like getting a carving knife and killing them. 
The therapist should have discussed what he said with the rest of the staff. Armstrong's family wondered why Davidson had waited so long to come forward with this story. He didn't offer any reason why in his letters, although his signature might have offered a clue. Below his name, Davidson wrote the numbers 28, 12, 31. Armstrong's family reasoned that it was Davidson's birth date, December 28, 1931. Perhaps he was very ill and wanted to make sure the Armstrongs knew the truth before he died. Whatever the reason was, Davidson kept writing. In his third letter, dated February 23, 2004, he described what he believed happened the night of Armstrong and Bartlett's murders. I don't believe for a moment that Suzanne was raped. The far more likely scenario is that Suzanne and Christy were involved in pillow talk. He's told her that he's killed a couple of people. The women decided to get rid of Christy and they threatened him with the police. He lost control and he killed them. This theory was pure speculation on Davidson's part. Christy never explicitly confessed to the crime. Davidson's belief that Christy was the killer stemmed from the statement he had made in group therapy about liking to maim women after having sex with them. For Davidson's theory to have any merit, it would have to mean that Suzanne Armstrong was romantically involved with Jack Christie. But according to interviews with Carl Brandenburg, he and Armstrong had discussed marriage, even though their relationship was still young. It was clearly serious. Although there is a chance that Armstrong could have been involved with Jack Christie as well, it seems unlikely. The Armstrongs were certainly skeptical of what Davidson had to say. In a letter Davidson sent in March 2004, he offered to meet with the Armstrong family. They declined. But Davidson didn't take their rejection easily. He next turned his attention towards Armstrong's son, Gregory, who also declined to meet with him. Davidson expressed his frustration to Bert in another letter from July 2004. You may not like the tone of this letter, but I'm tired of pussyfooting around. I'm an old man and could die at any time. I'm surprised, no, amazed really, that Gregory didn't want to see me. Sure, it would have been distressing to see a close friend of his mother's killer, but so what? You can drown in self-pity, you know. With the Armstrong family unwilling to listen to his theories, Davidson turned to the residents of Easy Street. In the summer of 2005, he left notes at all the houses in the area claiming Jack Christie had killed Suzanne Armstrong and Susan Bartlett. At one point, he even tried knocking on the door of the man who currently lived at 147 Easy Street. Stop knocking. It's three in the morning. Excuse me. Do you remember the women who died here? What? Who the hell are you? I'm the guy who knows who the killer is. Killer? What kill? You know what? Get off my property or I'm calling the police. Please do. I'll tell them everything I know. When the shocked resident threatened to call the police, Davidson encouraged him. He wanted to tell them he knew who the killer was. After that shocking incident, Davidson went silent. But on January 10, 2007, on the 30th anniversary of Armstrong and Bartlett's deaths, he wrote what would be his final letter. 
He revealed that he had visited Armstrong's youngest sister, as well as the police, in a final attempt to get someone to take his claim seriously. The Armstrongs wanted to believe what Davidson was telling them was true. But when they discussed the letters with the police, they told the Armstrongs not to believe anything Davidson told them. Apparently, Davidson had done the same thing to other murder victims' families. Unfortunately, there was no way to question Jack Christie. He died a decade before Davidson wrote his letters. Once again, the trail leading to Armstrong and Bartlett's killer had gone cold. But their families have refused to give up. Because of the presence of the killer's DNA sample, the case has remained open and is designated as highly solvable. However, even with advances in DNA technology, the case is a race against time. It has now been over 40 years since Suzanne Armstrong and Sue Bartlett were murdered, and the unfortunate reality is that their killer could die before he is identified. In fact, he might already be dead. In 2017, the Victoria Police Department offered a $1 million reward in an effort to drum up new leads in the case. So far, it is yet to yield any promising new information, but the victims' families remain hopeful that the case can still be solved. Although over 40 years have passed since Armstrong and Bartlett's deaths, their murders remain Australia's most famous cold case. Aside from its gruesome details, it represented a turning point in Australian culture. Even in the working-class neighborhood where Armstrong and Bartlett lived, people tended to leave their doors unlocked and their windows open. While violent crime did exist, it was exceedingly rare. Armstrong and Bartlett's death served as a terrifying reminder that danger could lurk around every corner, that someone you might consider a friend could turn out to be a cold-blooded killer. With several unexplored loose ends and the potential that the crime scene was contaminated, it's unfortunately possible that errors made in 1977 mean that the case might never be solved. But as bleak as it may seem, perhaps the day will come when the man who killed Suzanne Armstrong and Susan Bartlett on the night of January 10th, 1977, will be identified. Although DNA testing has cleared the original suspects in the case, there's something fishy about some of their stories, particularly the tobacco salesman's insistence that he never saw Susan Bartlett's dead body in the entryway is a bit hard to believe. Mm, agreed. But that doesn't necessarily mean he killed Armstrong and Bartlett. Well, maybe he just didn't call the police because he was afraid he'd get blamed for the crime. And that's certainly possible. If he was drunk enough to think it was a good idea to climb in through Bartlett's window, it's not a stretch to say his judgment that night was severely impaired. But it probably wasn't impaired enough for him to kill Armstrong and Bartlett. For me, the likeliest candidate is the ex-policeman who had an established track record of violence against women. He certainly doesn't look good. But unless the DNA sample is contaminated, or unless there's something wrong with the testing method, none of the suspects so far are the killers. Somewhere out there, a murderer roams free. If the killer is still alive, hopefully he will someday face justice. While it wouldn't bring Suzanne Armstrong and Susan Bartlett back to life, hopefully catching the man who killed them can bring their families a measure of peace. 
Thanks again for tuning in to Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Unsolved Murders, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, on Spotify and wherever else you listen to podcasts. For more information on the Easy Street murders, among the many sources we used, we found Murder on Easy Street, Melbourne's Most Notorious Cold Case by Helen Thomas, extremely helpful to our research. Well, several of you have asked how to help us if you enjoy the show. The best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler with sound design by Kenny Hobbs. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Maggie Admire, and Freddie Beckley. Unsolved Murders is written by Alex Benedin and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, in alphabetical order, Jerry Courtney Austin, Freddie Beckley, Mike Capozzi, Sarah Carroll, Sky King, Carly Madden, Kathleen Nielsen, Steve Pinto, and Manib Raymond. 